You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is the absolute personification of what it means to be a respected public servant, and that is Teresa Lubbers. Senator Lubbers, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We are joined by our co-host, Danielle Shockey, CEO, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Danielle is going to take over the questions, but I'm not going to bury the lead on the long list of incredibly impressive bullet points on Teresa Lubbers' resume, it starts with being an East Sider. She's a graduate of Warren Central High School. And we're going to ask her a little bit about her famous fellow Warren Central warrior, who she's known since the 1960s, and that's Mike McDaniel. But first, Danielle, it is all yours. Thank you, Teresa, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Well, so good to have you and so good to talk. And like Robert said, we're going to talk a little bit about really what it means to be the commissioner for Indiana higher education. Um, you know, and you can look up a definition that says you're, it's the coordinating agency charged with ensuring the state's post-secondary system is aligned to meet the needs of the students in the state. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Like, what does that really mean in action every day in your role? Well, first I'll mention the fact that uh, 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the Commission for Higher Education. We were created by state statute um, in 1971. Before that, there was no coordinating board. In some states, you'll have boards of regions where they actually run the colleges and universities. More states are organized like Indiana, where you're a coordinating board. And as the name would indicate, we coordinate a system of higher education, understanding that the presidents and the executive leadership teams and the boards of trustees actually run the operation of those institutions. But we have very specific responsibilities, including one that we're very engaged in right now, which is making recommendations of how to spend about $2.1 billion a year on higher ed and how we should fairly allocate that money among our systems. Uh, we also distribute financial aid. Um, some people may not know that Indiana actually ranks first in the Midwest and fourth in the nation in need-based aid. We distribute about $380 million a year in financial aid. Um, 
We actually approve degrees and programs in the public institutions uh, based on what kind of demands there might be as well. And, and in keeping with being a coordinating board, we have a strategic plan that we can certainly talk about. Our most recent one is called Reaching Higher in a State of Change. We adopted that um, at the end of 2019, not realizing how appropriate that title would be considering what 2020 would be like. Uh, so uh, you might think of us this way. We do the things that no one institution could do on their own. So whether it's transfer or allocation dollars or having a, a clear understanding of mission differentiation between the institutions, those kinds of things fall um, to the Commission for Higher Education. And so while you described really well that nuance of the higher education component, there's also a really big um, philosophical belief in Indiana and a lot of energy in a good way put towards the alignment from one might say, you know, cradle to career. So talk a little bit about how you take the role of the Commission for Higher Education and make sure that you are aligning across systems and across that span of a, of a, of a person in Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, I think if I look back, I've been doing this kind of work at this Capitol building and here for close to three decades now. And, you know, understandably so because our operations are different between early childhood education, K-12, higher ed, workforce, and lifelong learning. We've operated pretty much very siloed during most of the years, and we've done what we needed to do to meet the needs of our particular constituents. But as I often say, you know, what we really need to be invested in is people having the opportunity to live meaningful lives and have good jobs and careers, and that doesn't stop anywhere along the way. As important as it is, and you know this better than I do, to get kids off to a good start, nothing's more important than early childhood education. It doesn't end there. It's third grade reading is important, eighth grade math, graduating from high school with a credential, succeeding in some sort of post-secondary experience. All of those things are important. And what we've really been working to do is to have smooth handoffs between those. Really increasingly thinking about the individual learner at the center and the institutions and agencies and systems that serve them as opposed to in a hierarchical way, having these agencies and expecting people to find us and find what they need. So we really, we really serve populations of people. A few years ago, the legislature created um, what's called the governor's workforce cabinet. And I have the privilege of chairing that as well as serving as the commissioner. We really bring together state agencies who are focused on education and workforce um, together with employers, and legislators to actually look at the alignment of programs, policies, and funding to best serve Hoosiers. And I think we're doing a better job now than we've done in the past, but it's still, uh, there's still a lot of ways we could do better. Talk to us a little bit about um, forecasting and looking at the job opportunities and the job needs, you know, what sectors, what type of credentialing, what type of training education might be necessary, how much a time is spent or alignment there to make sure that the work we're doing today is preparing, you know, a workforce for tomorrow. And I know, you know, that, that Indiana's next level jobs and talk to us a little bit about that part of your work and focus. Well, that is such a great question. And it's, it's so important. And, you know, Robert talked about the fact that I grew up on the east side of Indianapolis. My father owned a small, small car dealership on the east side. And so the, the auto industry was always at the center of, you know, of my life. I always knew if you sold a lot of cars on Saturday, it'd be a good week. And if you didn't, you might not have such a good week. 
I mentioned that because so many of the people who I grew up with had families that worked on in one of those big plants on Shavelin Avenue, Ford, Chrysler, you know, Western Electric, all of those people working really hard to do um, what they needed to do to take care of their families, had the, you know, the consonant middle-class life and the world changed and we did nothing to prepare those folks for the changes in the economy. I'm informed by that every day in the work that I do now as I see such huge changes in automation, AI, technology. You know, yes, we're the most manufacturing intensive state in uh, the country and we have great jobs there, but those jobs have been and are changing. And we have an obligation to pre prepare people to get a good start but we have an equal obligation to make sure that we continue to stay with them and prepare them for those changes in the economy. I mean, the days of someone going to work in a job and staying there for 50 years, uh, just it's not the way that people think these days. And so, and even if they stay with the same employer, which many of them will, the job itself may change. So we are really working to prepare people for a good entry into the a job market and then also a commitment to help them along the way. And I think this is why the relationship with employers is so important. You know, we think that, uh, you know, it's education here in a sequential way. You get your education and then you get a job. No, you, it should be the integration between what you're learning and what you will be doing. Uh, your job shouldn't be a surprise when you show up. You should have had some career relevance. One of the things that one of the metrics that we've called out in the, the commission strategic plan is that every degree and program in higher education would have embedded career relevance, that you would have an internship, an apprenticeship, work-based learning of some sort. So yes, we have an obligation to get them off to a start and we have an obligation to prepare them for a changing economy as well. And in ways that we can't even imagine. Uh, and so it's um, in some case daunting certainly exciting, but if we want to be the kind of place, Indiana, where people choose to live, choose to stay, choose to come, it absolutely is all about the workforce. So tie back for our listeners who don't live and breathe this every day, what you just described sounds very post, post grade 12, but you don't accidentally just wait till grade 12. You're actually working backwards. And so I'm thinking about the recent diploma changes and maybe not so recent, two years, um, I think last year's freshmen or the first class. So you were already thinking forward because the new diploma requirements include things like internships and work-based learning. So talk to our listeners again about just how, do you, how are you making sure that those kind of alignments are are being very thoughtful in advance? Well, obviously the grad pathways that you refer to talk about having you know, some exposure to careers and alignment with careers when you're in high school, but it goes, as you know, goes much earlier than that. I mean, what you really wanna do is, I kind of think of it as this way, you know, when, when kids are little, when children are little, they should be thinking about anything in the world they want to do. They should not be bound by their own experiences by being first generation, by any other factor. The world should be open to them. And then as they get older and they begin by based on their aspirations and their preparation and the needs of the economy, it becomes clearer where their interests are. You start to nudge them places there. So whether it's with a successful CTE program that has an embedded industry certification that gets them off to a good start, or whether it's an academic honors diploma that opens up an opportunity at any post-secondary educational institution they might want. What you want is to individualize that education experience 
so that, in fact, they have the opportunity for the most exciting career opportunity that matches with them. And, and, it, and, and it does happen very, very early. That's for sure. <laughs> I, as you said, I can attest to that. And we witnessed that um, in Girl Scouts. And that's shameless plug, Robert. But that's what we try to make sure we do in Girl Scouts is we do expose them to a variety of things um, across all different types of um, life experiences because it may be something they had no idea they were in interested in. You know, suddenly they go to an aviation program. And they're like, I want to be a pilot. So, um, and you mentioned earlier the sectors in the economy. And I, yeah. you know, so we talk about everything from early childhood education. And then, you know, we also talk about the returning adult. And what we've said now is, you know, we have an opportunity for people to have an affordable option, whether it's the 21st Century Scholars Program that pays for first generation low income students to go to college or our tuition free uh, industry uh, certificates that we have now. In five sectors, we pay for IT and business. We pay for advanced manufacturing, health and life sciences, logistics and transportation, and building and construction. And we have about 150 certificates that are aligned to a good wage and a demand where we know if you come back and get this certificate, you will get a job, you will meet the needs of the employer, and the state has made a commitment to paying for that. So I think when you talk about affordability, what we try to say is whether it's the graduating high school student or the returning adult, we have a way for you to go to the next level with your education and training. So if, if a listener was interested in that and, and hearing this for the first time, I think communication is always, you know, you want to make sure as many people know as widely as possible. So they would a Google search, look up Indiana's next level. Is that what yeah, you can next level? You can go to your next, your next step, in.org. Now you could go to the commission's website. You can go to the department of workforce development. We've got you covered. Any one of those you go to, you'll find us. That sounds great. What about urban versus rural in Indiana and the opportunities? Um, everything you just described, you know, what is the infrastructure that's been put in place, whether it's, you know, I, and maybe it might be a little different question, but Ivy Tech and the, you know, the, the, the structure that we have in Indiana, which is somewhat unique. Um, we've had, we've had Sue Elsperman on the show. So what is it that makes sure that all Indiana population has access to all these great programs? Well, there's a lot of similarity between urban Indiana and rural Indiana and it's poverty. Uh, and we see it both places played out in different ways perhaps and student support services may be needing to look different. But the reality is, the reality is that the, the least likely population to complete college is rural America. The ones most skeptical of higher ed is rural America. Um, and so we know whether it's by you know, race, ethnicity, gender, geography, that we have huge issues associated with the opportunity to access and complete college. For rural, I mean, again, you know this, Danielle, but for rural Indiana, sometimes the same possible offerings of AP or dual credit, um, you know, it may be difficult for a small rural school to provide a full range of options like that. How do we use technology to make sure that that is uh, available to them? One of the things, in spite of all the difficulties of COVID, that we've learned is, you know, how much better we have to do with um, remote learning and virtual instruction. We also, sadly enough, have learned that what this has done is exposed even more the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. It is, I mean, you know, one of the things that keeps me awake at night is, you know, we have been doing so much to address these achievement gaps and equity issues, and it has stalled completely or fallen during the last year. I mean, the learning loss issues are huge. Um, the college going rates issue, uh, have dropped. 
um, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, I would say, you know, while there's no singular answer to any of these complicated questions, the closest we come in Indiana in terms of the transitions from high from K-12 into higher ed would be our 21st century scholars program. Uh, they are the only population on target to close the achievement gap by 2025. Um, they're going to college at, at a percent, 86% of scholars are accessing college compared to our overall population, not even low income, our overall population of 61%. They're exceeding their low income peers in every way and we're closing the gap. So I use every opportunity I can to uh, talk about, you know, last year would have been our 30th anniversary of the scholars program. Um, and um, so we need to do everything we can to encourage people. One of the interesting things we're doing now is intergenerational. We're working with community leaders um, who are trusted advisors in their communities to promote both the 21st Century Scholars Program for those students and the Workforce Ready Grant for their parents and adults. But both focused on helping them get a better job and opportunity and economic mobility. What an innovative way of thinking about that, the two-generation approach. That's great. So you mentioned skepticism um, and, you, and you mentioned, you know, making sure that every, you know, higher education, what are the opportunities for everyone? And right now, because of COVID, lots of things have come to light. You mentioned inequities, but you also mentioned um, this, this just idea of, is a four-year degree the right path? And there is growing skepticism um, around just the value of it, the, the purpose of things like the SAT and the ACT. I mean, everything is being questioned, it seems. How are you stemming that? Particularly, I think sometimes then the, the, the converse, the, the opposite of that is we've spent, and again, I, my background for our listeners was in education as, and as a school principal. I also think we had spent some time in Indiana reframing how how anything after K-12 is important. And that can be a credential. It can be a two-year program. It can be a four-year, it can be military service. And so getting away from that stigma that four-year is the only way, but it's also a really important way. So how are you kind of juxtaposing those two things? Keeping that skepticism at bay, highlighting the importance that, you know, in a lifetime, a college graduate earns more than a million dollars more than the non-college. I mean, so how are you balancing that conversation? Well, first we're acknowledging the reasons why people feel that way. And, um, and we know that some of this has to do with the fact that, you know, you didn't need to have those credentials in the past. And so what has changed? You know, I, I do a state of higher education address every year and um, year before last, mine was, you know, how do, why at a time when we know that education beyond high school is more important than ever, why is there a growing skepticism about its value? First, let me say that we really, in keeping with what you just said, you know, when people think college, they have traditionally thought four-year degrees. We talk about post-secondary education beyond high school, and that can mean industry certifications, short-term certificates, and those two really need to be aligned very specifically to the needs of the economy if you really want to start off and have a good start. But that's a great pathway for a lot of people. You know, going into the military is a great pathway. A two-year degree at one of our, you know, community college at one of our uh, campuses for Ivy Tech around the state are, is a great option for your degree. So it's really, again, it's aligned to an individual's aspirations, but also the needs of the economy. 
I sent a letter uh, to the editor today for the Wall Street Journal. There was an article yesterday entitled The Crisis of, Under of Unemployed Graduates and talking about what COVID had done in that sense. And then talking about, they use, of course, the, the example they always use, which is a psychology degree. You know, we produce all these people with psychology degrees, of which my daughter was one of them. And, you know, what happens to them if they either, if they don't go on with their education, which a significant number of them do, but also that you could take someone getting a psychology degree, but they also have business analytics at the same time, or they have something, uh, you know, uh, digital competencies in some way that align and open up the opportunities for them to have jobs. So back to your original question, why do people have skepticism about it? You know, one, I think it's affordability. How much does it cost? And will I get a return on my investment for what I'm paying? We have worked very hard and we've seen the smallest increases in tuition in Indiana um, in at least in 10 years and probably more like 20 years where schools are either holding tuition flat or no higher than an inflationary index, which is usually coming at about 1.4 or 1.6%. Um, I think you've already seen in the last couple of days, Butler's announced their freezing tuition. Taylor's announced their freezing tuition. Um, you know, you, you're finding that schools are responding to this whole question about cost. But even if you say that the cost is, um, you know, worth this investment of a million dollars more over the course of your lifetime, for example, how do you drive down the time it takes for someone to graduate? That's another way to save time. It shouldn't take six years for a four-year degree if you can keep from it. Um, so you have, how do you address that issue? How do you align what people are learning with what they're going to do? Back to this whole concept of career relevance so mm -hmm. that um, you have some sense that when you get that degree, it is aligned to a, a good job. I mean, learning is a wonderful thing under all circumstances. Most people access post-secondary education to get a good job. And so I think we need to make sure we meet that need. You know, there's some skepticism, let's be honest, from a political agenda. They think that it's, you know, what they will you know, you'll send, I'll send my kid away from home, you know, living in a rural community, they'll never come back and there'll be a liberal agenda that's taught to them. You know, that there should never be a singular point of view in higher education, but that it should be open to multiple points of view. And so you hear that. I mean, there are lots of reasons based on an individual's life journey. I think for people who have been displaced in their jobs and who thought they were doing the right thing, there's just, there's, there's a hopelessness and, and, uh, it goes beyond skepticism. It's sometimes it's anger, and sometimes it's fear. But they, you know, they we've got to find a better way to make this connection to people's lives. And so, you know, we do an Indiana College Value Index where we cover things like debt, costs, did you get a job? But we also measure qualitative things too. It isn't just how much money you make that determines the value of your education experience. It's also, you know, we know that your health will be better, you're more civically engaged, lots of other things that are qualitative metrics. So as sort of an old marketing person myself, you know, I think we need to do a much better job of selling the value proposition of higher education in a way that's relevant to people's lives. Which you mentioned two very tangible things when you were talking, or at least very tangible to me. And one was you didn't use the words dual credit per se, but you you were alluding to that we have this amazing catalog of opportunity for dual credit in Indiana. And again, for our listeners who, who you know, I have a daughter in college and two in high school. Does the average family understand when to make those decisions as they help their child think about high school, that they can be saving 
you know, a year's worth of college tuition by making wise choices in, in high school with dual credits. So talk a little bit about dual credits. And then I want to talk about the FAFSA too, as and money left on the table and how to make sure that um, all students are taking advantage there as well. One of the best values that I think the commission offers are the reports that we put out. We just came out with our uh, early college credit report, uh, showing again uh, the value, both in terms of savings to the state and savings to the individual and the preparation that you have then to access higher education. This can be CTE dual credit or it can be liberal arts dual credit, as you know as well. Um, we now have 64% of Hoosier students are graduating from high school with dual credit. What we want to make sure is what some people refer to as random acts of dual credit, you know, a course here, a course there, that we're actually aligning the at dual credit in a more intentional way. Um, and so we have, um, you know, we, we now have what we call the Indiana uh, College Core, where we have 30 credits um, that are, many of them are dual credits that transfer seamlessly within higher ed. But I mean, the, the millions of dollars that a student can save uh, collectively as students can save by taking quality early college credit uh, is a story that has to be told. And it has to, once again, you're gonna see a disparity here between those who are taking it and those who aren't. The good news is Indiana many, many years ago put in statute a requirement that every school offer at least two dual credit and two AP courses. That really drove, I think, the fact that we have a higher number of students in Indiana taking dual credit um, but we still have to make sure that um, we're aligning it the right way and that more people are taking advantage of those opportunities. I mean, you know, I'm not, a, I understand why we have the general diploma from high school, but the general diploma is not preparing people for the most part for life after high school. So we really need to look at what really prepares people, regardless of the pathway that they're taking, going straight into the world of work or onto post-secondary. We know that if you take early college credit, you're not only do you save money, but you're much more likely to be prepared and you are much more likely to graduate on time or early. Perfect. That's a great PSA for our listeners because you mentioned every school, every high school in Indiana should have at least some offerings for dual credit as, as you just described. So every parent that might be listening, don't let your child tell you, yeah, mom and dad, we don't have that at my school because they do. Um, and so I want to talk about FAFSA and I know Robert's probably getting anxious that we pause and flip it over to him. But, you know, you mentioned $380 million, I think you said, available each year in Indiana. And yet the one, if I understand it correctly, kind of the one barrier can be the lack of completion of your FAFSA, your financial federal financial aid form. Um, I think I read somewhere today that in the end of 2020, only 28% of the high school graduates have completed it. And that's down from last year. So the trend is not looking positive. What, what is it? I mean, again, let's hope maybe some of our listeners don't know what this is about. So give a little PSA for why, but how do we um, make, help change this? In Indiana? The FAFSA is the free application for student financial aid and any merit or need-based aid will require you to fill out the FAFSA and most and so we basically say you should fill out the FAFSA and the, the good news is it's going to be easier. One of the, the parting shots that um, U.S. Senator Alexander uh, Lamar Alexander had was to simplify the, the FAFSA uh, to make sure that it wasn't so difficult to complete but I mean if you're hedging your bets don't hedge your bets by not filling out the FAFSA because you could lose the opportunity to receive significant financial aid. 
Uh, and yes, the numbers are down. Once again, from an equity standpoint, they're most down with the people who need it most. Um, and so we really need to make sure we get it out there. We have time to close this gap. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they start, opened up the FAFSA for you to be able to complete it earlier. It opens up in October now, but we have until the middle of April for people to finish that. So we are doubling down on our efforts to make sure that people complete the FAFSA. There's legislation uh, in, in the General Assembly this year to actually require the completion of FAFSA with an opt-out for parents or principals or counselors if they choose not to do that. It's a risky proposition not to complete the FAFSA. And it's also important for people to know that you have to complete it every year. So you don't do it one time and done, you know, every time you continue to receive financial aid. Um, we also think that, you know, what, that's another benefit of the 21st Century Scholars Program is that we do require scholars to complete that. And we start early doing financial literacy so that families understand why that's an important thing to do. But we do need help in all circles to make sure that this isn't another lost cohort of students as we've referred to many of these students in this 2020 year, that there were not, we haven't lost them in terms of their ability to access financial aid and filling out the FAFSA is critical. Perfect, all right, can I ask one more question, Robert? Yes, ma'am. It actually ties into where you're headed because- I'm headed to the east side, so you're gonna ask well, a question about the east side. Doesn't everything head to the east side? If they're smart. <laughs> so commissioner, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask is, what are you most proud of? But I actually, there's something, again, outsider looking in, I am so proud of Indiana for the opportunities we provide families in the space of choices for schools. And so this is looking back a little bit in your career, back to 1999, Bart Peterson, um, at the time, you know, was not quite yet in office, but part of, you know, one of the things he stood for was choice and every family should have the opportunity to, you know, have, you know, he, he basically said, you know, a way to build consensus is in education, right? How do we get everybody to have equal opportunity? So you were a leader. You were a leader with several others, um, Governor O'Bannon and Mitch Daniels. And then, Tony. I mean, Indiana's just heads and tails above other states in this space. And I don't know that you know this, but Girl Scouts is actually um, right now in partnership and working on an application to have a K-8 all-girls STEM academy um, charter, charter school, school in Indianapolis. Um, so for a lot of reasons, I just think it, it was brilliant. It was, so I'm proud of Indiana and I'm, I, I'm proud to be able to say that we're talking about it. And so just if you can, um, what are your comments on the ongoing leadership that our state plays in this choice space? Well, this could take the rest of the-, the I know, I right? have together, I have so I, I will try not to do that. Actually, 2021 is the 20th anniversary of the passage of the charter school law. Um, remember well, because it took us seven years to get that law passed. You know, the concept for me for choice has really been about right fit for, this, for students. And, um, you know, that it's really about sort of freedom with accountability, understanding that sort of was the leading way to talk about the individualization of education. And when you think about special ed students having, I, having IEPs, for example, what we really tried to say is there needs to be a special kind of IEP and a, executive plan, a plan, an educational plan. In some ways, you know, students need that wherever they are and that uh, choice options provide that. So one of the things that I've always felt strongly about is that we preserve quality under all circumstances in, in education. We acknowledge that parents should have the ability to make decisions about their, parent, their kids' education. 
uh, and that that may look very different. I mean, in, in different, I mean, that yours is a perfect example, you know, a, a STEM school for girls. Um, I mean, that addresses, you know, a lagging narrative that we've had here where kids, girls have not been involved in those areas. If you look at the Tinley School, you know, really focused on inner city, making sure that every one of those kids was going to college and that they early on were trying to do that. Um, so there are lots of different ways to, to do this, but um, I think that at the end of the day, it is really about right fit for the student. And that doesn't look one way. Perfect. Thanks for talking about it again. I, like I said, thank you for the work you did um, and continue to champion in that space. All right, Robert, West Side, East Side. <laughs> Mercy. I know. <laughs> you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is former state senator and now commissioner for higher education, Teresa Lovers. Teresa, what is it like to grow up on the east side in the 60s? Wonderful. And by the way, you should know if you don't know already, Robert, that I did my student teaching at Howe. Um, I did know that uh, a spy, otherwise known as your husband, told me that, and yes. get, that's my next question. So yeah. go ahead, and knock yeah. Two I up. grew up. I grew up three blocks east of Eastgate on Burbank, uh, and had just an unbelievably blessed educational experience where I was, and just a wonderful family, a great way to grow up. Um, it was, I, I think, you know, it was fairly. There wasn't a lot of wealth, and there wasn't a lot of poverty. Uh, there was a lot of opportunity. And um, schools were the solidifying factor for our neighborhoods, uh, along with churches. It was really schools and churches that kept us together. And I think st that's still true to a, to a great degree. Um, so I, you know, I, I went my first three years to a school called Township House, uh, which was at the corner of Franklin Road and Washington Street. I got a great start there and then went to Moorhead and then went to Woodview and then went to Warren. Um, and you know, there's nothing that I remember about my my experience that really isn't pretty positive. Um, it provided great opportunities. I was a really really active in speech when I was in high school. I used to I used to say that I was in my 20s before I realized that the NFL had anything to do with football. I thought it was the National Forensic League. Uh, and you know, every Saturday, I got on a bus and went to a speech meet someplace around the state. Great opportunities to do that. So. Um, you know, we, we had a, you know, I, I still keep up with lots of my friends from that period of time in my life um, and um, consider myself to be really fortunate to have been an East Sider. You mentioned, we all feel that way, uh, actually. You mentioned uh, your dad owned a car dealership. Which one did he own? It was Dick Smith Chrysler Plymouth at, uh, on Washington Street. And did, and go ahead. Uh, he actually, before that, he had been at what was Cross Country Rambler, which was a little bit farther east um, at Franklin Road in Washington Street. Do you get a chance to go back there much? Every once in a while, I'll just, well, I'll ride my bike from downtown to Irvington. That's one travel. But every once in a while, when I'm in my car, if I have time to kill, 
sometimes I'll just ride around the east side and go, you know, I bought cassettes here. I swam at the Miramar that used to be here. Do you do that every once in a while just to kind of like point out different things? And my wedding reception was at the Miramar. Uh, and I w- would be there all the time in the summer. I- I'll tell you a secret that sometimes when things are kind of like crazy here, I'll get in the car and I'll drive to the east side. I'll go to the Starbucks in Irvington. And sometimes I'll go to the Dairy Queen that's a little bit farther east there and pick up a Dairy Queen. Uh, drive by my old house on Burbank. Drive by my church uh, where it was. Um, so, yeah, I find lots of reasons. Um, my mother is uh, lived still east. Um, and she now is in assisted living at Westminster. So, uh, but I will pick her up and take her and drive her around all those places as well. Um, just to sort of connect and feel great about that experience. And I, I love the Irvington area. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's charming and provides great opportunities for people. And I'm fighting for its comeback all the time. Even it's already doing great, but I want it to do even better. Mayor Ballard used to kick me out of meetings that would involve the East side because he would just say, look, you're just going to tell them they can have whatever they want. So just get the hell out because (laughs) they're not going to get everything they want. So let's just eliminate that aspect of it. One time he did it in front of a bunch of East side advocates and they laughed as I uh, kind of, uh, you know, ambled out of the room and said, you know, call me in case he says, no, I'll be happy to advocate for you. My mother went to Warren central, actually my, maternal side of my family. She graduated in 56. And then a few months after graduation, she actually joined the Marine Corps. But she loved being in high school at that time. And I think that kind of carried over. But you were in high school in a tumultuous time in the United States. Actually, it changed. I I use this as an example, because when I graduated from high school, I I'm sure I was probably naive. I'm sure there were some people who were had, had involved with drugs, but I didn't know anybody at that point. When I came back just four years later to teach at Warren, you know, I one of my jobs was to really be sort of check out the bathrooms between break time to make sure that there weren't any drugs in there. So I mean, there was a period of time when I started to college, it was, you know, around the time of Kent State and obviously the Vietnam War. Uh, all those happening at the same time, it was a very exciting time for women because it was, we were on the cusp of women being able to realize that, um, you know, there were multiple pathways for us that while nursing and teaching were two wonderful pathways, they weren't the only pathways for women. So the world was kind of opening up that way as well. Um, But yes, I mean, it was, um, it was a time of great change, uh, societal, you know, economic, uh, really uh, all around us. And so I was kind of just right in the middle of all that happening. You graduated from Warren and you went to Indiana University, graduated uh, with a bachelor's degree, but you were there during a time when there were some pretty famous people walking around Indiana University. So do you remember seeing young coach, because he probably would have been in his 30s at the time, Bob Knight around campus? Do you remember seeing Mark Spitz walking around campus? You know, I I, re, I remember Mark Spitz. I don't remember much about Bob Knight at that point. I remember Jerry Rubin from the Chicago 7 coming and being in Dunmeadow the first couple of weeks I was there. Um, uh, I remember there was an all-campus march uh, the first week. I remember my RA taking, me to the lower, taking us to the lower level to tell us what we should do if we were tear gassed. I mean, I remember a few of those things happening. Um, but... Um, you know, I still probably 
was fairly sheltered at that way. You know, I, I'm not sure that the transition from my senior year of high school to that abrupt jarring kind of change that you can really prepare for it. You just sort of live through it and then remember it afterwards. Uh, so, you know, you, I, uh, I, I know it was a time of great change. I, I remember it being a time of great opportunity as well and just sort of the world opening up for us. So um, again, I tend to look, I'm, on, I'm a glass half full kind of person. So I remember the good things about it, I guess. Everybody I know who attended Indiana University uh, on campus in Bloomington would go back tomorrow. Would you? Was it that much fun? It was fun. It was beautiful. Um, it is beautiful. It was great opportunity. And I do in my current job, you know, I get a chance to go to campuses all the time. So uh, I always enjoy when our commission meetings are in Bloomington. Do you drive around Bloomington a little bit, just like you do, I, I do. Irvington and the East Side? I do. I do. I remember... You know, I can, I mean, like, I remember stories, like, I can't believe I'm telling this story, but, you know, we used to hitchhike, you know, back then. I mean, you would, I can't even imagine one of my daughters hitchhiking now, but you would hitchhike to the mall or you would hitchhike someplace. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a different, it was a different era. One of the things that you go in, one of the eras that you're, your growing up and becoming an adult and getting an education coincided with was the election of Richard Luger as mayor of Indianapolis in 1967. He was elected about six weeks before I was born. And uh, we've had the opportunity to do a podcast on the career of Richard Luger. We had Jim Morris and Gail Lowry and Danielle and um, Jim Shella and just talk about his wonderful career. When did you first kind of become aware of politics in the local sense, because there was so much happening nationally in the late 60s? And what sort of drove you to become part of the Luger family? Well, it's, you know, other than my biological family, it's the best family I've ever been in, a, a part of. Um, you know, I, when I was in high school, I was involved in student government and I um, so in 1968, uh, I remember uh, contacting the mayor's office and asking if I could, inter I was sort of presumptuous, I guess, if I could interview Mayor Luger. And they said yes. And I got on this bus and went downtown. I had my little tape recorder with me and, you know, had a, he spent an hour with me. I got on the bus to go home and realized that I hadn't hit the right button. I hadn't taped one word that he said to me. So uh, that was a disaster. But I tried to, you know, put together as much as I could. But if he, started what had been, you know, a 40-year um, mentor-student relationship that I've had with him. I had the great fortune to speak at his interment at Arlington Cemetery and share some of those stories. Um, you know, I went back after I taught, uh, I, each of my summers when I was in college then, I worked in the Department of Transportation. So, and it was during the time there were a lot of us, I mean, who were interns back then. It was a very exciting time. Uh, and then I had sort of been bit by the political bug. So I was getting ready to start on my master's. I loved teaching, but I also had this other sort of part of me that loved this as well. So I went to work in the mayor's office during the last two years he was as mayor, as the director of information. And then uh, Mitch and I opened up his campaign office on January 1st of 1976. Having, you know, already he and I had gone through the loss before to Birch Bay with you know, my very first campaign I was ever involved with was the 1974 campaign when Luger lost. Um, and then we came back to that campaign. And then so we, and then I uh, 
uh, moved to, to DC to work on his Senate staff then. And, um, you know, each of my, everything I've ever done, he's been involved with. Um, you know, I, together with Judy Singleton, uh, 30 years ago, we started the Luger Excellence in Public Service Series, which has now had, you know, well over 500 women who have graduated from that program with his name on it, who are making incredible uh, impact uh, in Indiana politics and government and really around the country as well. I remember um, meeting with him, three of us to broach the idea of starting the Luger series. And, uh, you know, without a beat, I mean, some people would have thought, keep in mind, this was 30 some years ago, and we really didn't have much gravitas at this point. Uh, and we presented this idea to him and it, he said, you know, absolutely. And, you know, we, the full participation of women is important. And we are losing not having enough women who are involved in politics and government. So, uh, you know, he spoke to every class uh, in that program. And, um, you know, I went back to this year's class and to talk about the Luger legacy. And I will admit, I'm, I'm not overly uh, emotional, but I had a hard time getting through that because I will say there is rarely a day of my life that goes by that I don't use his name or that I don't think of him. Um, he had that kind of an impact on my life. I remember when my, my dad died, and uh, this has been uh, about six years ago, and we were, uh, the cemetery was on the east side, of course, and we were close to the end of the calling, and I looked up and in walked Dick Luger, uh, you know, so this has only been like six years in walk, and I, I just, I said, I can't believe you're here, and as was normal Luger style, he always deflected from himself onto you, and he said, well, I wouldn't be any place else other than with you. And, uh, and then I just, you know, it, it just, as you can imagine, meant so much to me. I mean, when I took this job and I'm now almost 12 years into this job, uh, I'd only been in this job maybe a couple months and his office, his state office called me and said, the senator would like to come over and, and meet your staff. And, and uh, I think he really just wanted to come over and say that he was supporting me. He really, that's what he was really there for. So. Once again, just like I could talk about the educational uh, journey that I've had, I could talk about my relationship with Luger forever. I mean, I, you know, we're one of the Luger marriages. Uh, we met working uh, for Dick Luger. I think there are over 20 of us, uh, all of but still together after all these years, uh, because a certain kind of person, I think, gravitated to Dick Luger and he it made us better. It's without getting too political here. You know, I always wanted to work for someone who was smarter and better than me. And I got that privilege of doing that with him. And I think that's the way we should think about it. You know, that we're not, that we should look for aspirational leaders, people who hold us to be something better rather than just make us comfortable necessarily with who we are. Do you remember meeting in the mayor's office? Because I'm going to guess that's where it happened. Meeting Mitch Daniels and... In forming that, not my first bond. time. Not my first time. When I first met um, Mitch Daniels, he was working for Campaign Communicators, which was Keith Bulin's organization, working on the '74 campaign. So that preceded his days of coming to the mayor's office. After Luger lost that '74 campaign, then Mitch came to the to the mayor's office, and um, then that was when you know we I sort of started my involvement with him in terms of working relationships through the years. Actually, when I first went to work in the mayor's office, his sister, Deborah Daniels, was actually working in the mayor's office then. And we, we sometimes reminisce on the fact that uh, during that 74 campaign, we would leave the office at the end of the day and we would go over to the campaign office and on an old fashioned typewriter, we would 
hammer out thank you notes to people who had, you know, given money to uh, to then Mayor Luger. Uh, so, you know, our, our stories are abundant and I'm sure people get tired of hearing them. We never get tired of thinking about them. Do you remember meeting Mark Miles during the 74 oh, campaign? Yes. When I first started working in the mayor's office, he was an intern and I was on staff. So um, he had come in as an intern in the in the mayor's office. And that's the first time that I met Mark. And is it fun all these years later to look to see, you know, I think it's fair to say that Mark Miles has had a pretty decent career and Mitch Daniels has done pretty okay for himself and Deborah Daniels and Jim Morris and and the entire Luger political tree. When you when you think about how it all started and then you think about where you are now, isn't it really or is it I should say is it a reflection on the the character and leadership and personality of Richard Luger? I think it is. I really do think it is. I think he instilled in us a sense of public service that was the same thing that he learned from his parents, which was that it was if if you were provided with opportunity and if you had certain abilities, you were you had an obligation to share them. uh, And um, that's the way he, you know, clearly lived his life. Um, and I think he inspired many of us to want to do that as well. I mean, we believe that, you know, public service is a calling, that there's some degree of nobility about it if it's done correctly. Um, but, and it's why, you know, again, without being political, you know, I think some of us keep thinking, you know, we need heroes again. I mean, he was a hero for us. That doesn't mean he was perfect. and doesn't mean you have to agree with all his positions on issues. It was really a matter of his character and competence and, and his commitment to the way he did his job that I think inspired us and inspired so many people who, as you mentioned, have gone on to share their talents to improve the lives of others. The Indianapolis Business Journal did a profile of the Leaders and Legends podcast. It was in their uh, paper a few months ago. And they asked me who was my favorite guest. And my response was, that's easy. The answer is Greg Ballard. He changed my life. Is it fair to say that Richard Luger changed your life and, and maybe some of the things or the careers that you thought you may pursue were changed by the example of one man? I always say, in fact, I got to see the senator about just a few weeks before he died, IU was doing the, they had archived all of his papers. And so I was there and I had the chance to tell him what I had told him before. And that was that, you know, I said, you know, other than my faith and my family, you've had the greatest influence on my life. You know, I met my husband. So from a personal standpoint, um, everything I've ever done professionally, I've done thinking, would, would you be proud of me? And, um, Again, you know, instead of thinking, taking this in, that I was saying these things about him, he immediately turned it, deflected it to me again. So I was so grateful that I had the chance to say that to him again. But I have said it so many times through the years that, um, that uh, you know, he, he had, his influence on my life is immeasurable. When Senator Luger passed, the Indianapolis Star gave me an opportunity to write a column about him and his career. In that, I called him the greatest public servant in the history of Indiana. Am I on the money or maybe a little off the mark, given the amazing number of public servants we've had? Well, you're, um, you know, you're not asking someone who's objective. That's why I, I asked. <laughs> so I would certainly agree, not only because of his career, 
you know, from school board to mayor to U.S. senator to the Luger Center after that. I mean, what I loved about the senator is he had an indomitable spirit. I mean, when he lost that primary race, he didn't miss a beat to figuring out, so what was the next chapter that he could have that he could make a difference? So both from his career, I think that's true, but I also think that the ways in which you can follow all these other people who have continued to make a difference in their own circles has to be a part of that legacy as well. And maybe there were other leaders uh, you know, throughout our history as a state, and we just don't know about all of them, but I can't think of anybody who has I, mean, I don't know one person, think about this, I don't know one person who ever worked for Dick Luger who wasn't a fan for the rest of their lives. You know, it's so easy with so many political leaders to like them from a distance and maybe not necessarily like them up close, you know, but th that's certainly what isn't true with him. I mean, he, um, he invested in us, he cared about us, you know. I mean, I, when I talked at the, at Arlington Cemetery, I talked about, you know, uh, Chuck Hagel was there to talk, Senator Hagel was there to talk about his career. I talked about the, the living legacies of his career. The Fund for Who's Your Excellence that funds minority students and has been doing that for over 30 years. You know, the scholarship program that he has, all the things that he did through that, the, the leaders program that he did at the uh, University of Indianapolis for high school students. And of course the Luger series and all the rest of us who individually. So his fingerprints uh, are all over the place. And I think in a, a really a way that puts them at the very top of our state leaders ever. When I was reading off the list of sponsors and I got to McAllister Machinery, I saw you smile. How important are people like P.E. McAllister and Bill Mays, Andy Von Shaheen, and the list goes on and on. Folks who don't necessarily run for office, but are involved from a civic standpoint and a selfless civic standpoint. You've been in public service one way or the other uh, since the 1970s. How critical is their participation for making something different, bigger than themselves? The biggest example, obviously, is the Super Bowl. And if I had told you in 1975, hey, guess what? In 2012, Indianapolis is going to completely redefine the Super Bowl for the National Football League, you would have said, what no, Super Bowl? What? Yeah, right. Probably. <laughs> probably I would have. You know, I think the people you, you mentioned are so interesting because I think all of them were selfless in the way that they did. I mean, who didn't love P.E. or you know, who doesn't love Yvonne Shaheen or who doesn't who didn't who doesn't love who didn't love Bill Mays? I mean, these are people who their personalities were big um, and they were, you know, they they, once again, like the senator, I think, inspired people to be better and gave selflessly. I mean, they did it. Those of us, I mean, I have spent time outside of the public sector, but a good portion of my career has been in the public sector. For those who, you know, every day get up to meet a bottom line or do something else that's in the private sector, who still find the time and the energy and the commitment to improve civic life, I think are the, are the real heroes as well. Um, I mean, and, and when we lose one of them, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine who's going to come in their place. I think the obligation we have today is we need to find the new P.E. McAllister's and, the, you know, the new people who will actually lead what, what the kind of 21st century leadership we need. Um, 
And, um, you know, I always think at this point in my career, the most important things I do is really invest in the, in the new leaders and, you know, try to find opportunities to use my experience and the judgment that comes with age and combine that with the enthusiasm and the passion and the new ideas of the young uh, to kind of come alongside each other uh, to think about the future. Um, and the thing about the people you mentioned is the, to the end of their careers, they were thinking about the future. I mean, how often did PE talk about the way things used to be as composed compared to talking about the way things are or should be? I mean, that is an extraordinary way to be able to age and think about a better future that's not tied to your experience of the past is really an incredible way to be. And not many people can do that. I'm going to ask you two more, two more quick questions, then we'll turn it back over to Danielle for the five questions. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast is Commissioner Prior Education, Teresa Lubbers. 1981, you graduated with a master's public administration from Harvard University. What made you decide to go there? And what was it like to be in that um, den of not necessarily Reagan country uh, during the <laughs> early 80s? Well, Mark and I were married at that point, and uh, I, I had been working for the National Federation of Independent Business, and he was still working for the senator and decided that he was going to go back and get his MBA. And so he only applied one place, Harvard, and he was accepted. And I said, well, if you're going to go back to school, I'm going to go back to school too. So I applied to the Kennedy School. Um, and uh, we went from having two incomes to living off of student loans, which we paid back very quickly, I will say, or maybe not quickly, but we paid them back. Um, and so, but it was a very interesting school. My One of my advisors was Michael Dukakis. Uh, it was during the time after he'd been governor, but before he ran for president. Uh, I, I would say that in my program at that time, there were probably you know, there were a couple hundred of us in the program. You were required in my program to have worked in the public sector at least five years. Um, I only saw, there were only probably about 10 identifiable Republicans out of that group. Um, and I always felt like I probably got a better education than most because it was at a point in my life where most of my ideas, or a lot of my ideas about public service had been formed. And I was in a position where I had to think about why I thought that what the ways that I did, what, what you know, and, and, and often I was challenged in my thinking. Um, and so, you know, what was my basic philosophy about the role of government, you know, personal responsibility, um, safety nets for people, um, you know, all the things that were identified in some ways with parties in ways that I maybe hadn't really considered before. So, um, yeah, I would say I was definitely in the overwhelming minority of those who were there, but I would say that it was a very, it was a really great learning experience for me. And interestingly enough, I've said this a couple of times to people, Michael Dukakis in some ways was sort of the Democrat liberal version of Luger in that he was very cerebral. He was a problem solver. He wasn't always the, the first, the most charismatic person in the room. Uh, he spoke at a very high level of complexity. I mean, I remember he was asking me in 1981 about the license branch system in Indiana. Um, <laughs> I mean, I thought, you know, how do you even know about the license branch system in Indiana? So, yeah, it was, um, it was a great opportunity for me. Uh, and actually, um, it's interesting. One of our daughters, Maggie, ended up being a 
an intern for Luger one summer. My niece ended up working for Luger in the Foreign Relations Committee. And um, my and she ended up coming, going to the Harvard Business School later too. So we've had lots of opportunities to revisit places that were important in our lives. The last question for me, it's one thing to be involved in politics in the public sector. It's another thing to take the leap and put your name on a set of, of declaration of candidacy papers. Uh, you served in the Indiana Senate for 16 years, 1993 to 2009. What made you decide to actually run for office? And just very, kind of very quickly, what are some of your fondest memories? Because you were involved in the Indiana Senate when when both parties, especially, but Republicans had a, a, a real roster of heavyweights, Larry Borst, Murray Clark, Bob Garton, the list goes on and on. I never really thought I would run for office early on. I thought I would always be supportive of other candidates with my time and whatever disposable income I might have to support candidates. Uh, but, um, you know, I uh, was encouraged by Virginia Blankenbaker, who held the seat before me, to think about running. And I, to be honest, I kind of looked around and thought, you know, there are some issues that I really care about. And the ones that I really cared about were education and economic development and the relationship between the two. And that, um, and I thought, you know, maybe I was, you know, somewhat prepared for that uh, without going into the birth pains of my beginning careers in elected politics. I was not the chosen candidate. I was not slated. I was not expected to win. Uh, that first race, I was expected, you know, sort of step aside. And um, at that point, um, you know, I had, I had little girls at home, my girls were five and seven. And I always tell the story that I really, after I lost the slating, um, you know, I really toyed with the idea of whether I should stay in the race or not, thinking that it would be pretty impossible, you know, uh, to, for me to win that primary. And Maggie, the little one said, Mom, you should run. When I fall off my bike, you tell me to get back on again. You should run. And I thought, you know what? What message am I sending to these two little girls? If because it got hard, would I rather have them see me that I tried and I lost or that I just gave up? So that was part of the reason why I stayed in the race. And, you know, fortunately, I, I won the primary by about 12 points and, and you know, ran a really classic campaign um, uh, that whole time. And one of my great privileges throughout the years was, you know, John Ruckelshaus, who was my opponent during that primary, and I were great buddies, have been forever. I supported him and was really, you know, up into this last race. And, um, you know, I felt like whenever I did something that was kind of hard in the Senate, I could expect to get a note from John and he would, you know, encourage me and urge me on. And so this is why I think politics can actually, even people you disagree with on the other side, you know, at some level, there's some kind of collegiality that should unite us, even when there are things that could drive us apart. And my experience with people like Erlene Rogers in the Senate, um, my experience with John in my own party taught me that um, there's a whole lot more that we can work on together than should divide us. And uh, I consider it a privilege to have had opportunities to work with people like Erlene and, and John and others through the years. Real quick, before Danielle gives you the five questions, you want to share a Mike McDaniel walking down the hallway of Warren Central High School story? Well, Mike and I go way back, of course, you know, to, um, uh, you know, junior high, which is what it was back then when he moved to Indianapolis from Muncie. And uh, he was a, you know, real leader, basketball player, did all kinds of things in sports as well. And, you know, 
That was kind of sweet on Mike for a little while, which I'm sure he would be happy to tell you. So. <laughs> we're sweet on Mike here at the Leaders of Legends I, and I, Actually, I saw Mike this morning at the coffee shop, and we were talking about that we were old enough. We were excited that we got our first vaccine shot. So look how far we've come from junior high to being old enough to get the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, you ready? I am. So same questions every guest um, receives, Teresa. What was your first job? My first job was actually being a coffee girl at MCL. I poured coffee at MCL at on the east side. 10th and Arlington? Yes, 10th and Arlington, yes, absolutely. My mother, my mother worked there when she was in high school at Warren Central. Did she really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I actually poured coffee down somebody's purse one day when I was doing it, but, I, but I, they kept me around for a little while. <laughs> All right. What was your first concert? My first concert was, oh my gosh, that's interesting. It should be the Beatles because, you know, I could have been able to see the Beatles at the state fairgrounds, but I did the Turtles. I think the Turtles at Clues Hall was my first actual conference that I went to. Okay. All right. Anything we want to Nobody would even know who the Turtles would be. Google the Turtles, those of you who are listening. <laughs> the, the, the Beatles are better than the Turtles. That's uh, the Beatles are definitely better than the Turtles, but I, you know. I was going to say the Ninja Turtles. I was going to age <laughs> Okay. What is a book that you would recommend for others to read that you've loved? You know, I, um, I read mostly fiction these days. And the ones that I'm reading right now are Louise Penny books, which have to do with, um, uh, she's a mystery writer from Canada. So I love all, all of those books and read them all the time. Probably my favorite all-time book would be um, books like, uh, would be Wuthering Heights, or I, I read all British literature. So I love all British TV. I love all British literature. Jane Eyre was always one of my favorite books of all times. I love Shakespeare. Um, I, you know, had an opportunity. I can, I will steal off a few Shakespeare lines if I want to. So I think it's timeless. And of course, the thing that I read without sounding like what everybody else says, but my, my go-to for a living is always the Bible. Thank you. Thank you. If you could be there in person and witness a moment in history, what moment would you want to be there and see that firsthand? That is really another hard question. If I had to just be a singular point of view for one, for one time, I think I probably would like to see, have seen something during the suffragette movement and being able to actually see the women who were fighting for the right to vote and what the sacrifices that they would have been willing to make so maybe not one point of view, but that period in time that we're celebrating now, I think would probably speak to me as much as anything as I think about all the opportunities I have, which were deprived to so many people for so long. Thank you. And then the last question, if you could have lunch two hours off the record with any one person that's still living, who would you want to spend time with? This is really political. Most people in my party won't agree with me, but I would like to spend two hours with Mitt Romney right now. I would like to, because the experiences that he's having and uh, his longevity of service, uh, I'd like to get the inside scoop on a lot of those things. So I probably would pick Mitt Romney. And that goes to show just how political I still am. Thanks for talking with us today, Robert. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, 
the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Eastsider, leader, a participant in some of the most impactful public service decisions and initiatives of the last 30 or 40 years, and a proud member of the extended Luger family, Commissioner for Higher Education, Teresa Lubbers. Thank you so very much. We've had Mark Lubbers on. We've had Teresa Lubbers on. So tell your kids, you know, we're ready. Okay, I will. They'll be more interesting than we are. Well, I can't say that. Nobody's more interesting than Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.